Before we start the show, if you want more stock talking, check out my newsletter at tinyletter.com slash bbrostoff or visit postcoronastocks.com. You can find me on Twitter at at BMB21. Now, on to the show. Welcome to Stock Talking, an exploration of financial markets in the context of the post-corona world. COVID-19 has changed the way we value equity, debt, and business as a whole. My goal is to find great companies who can thrive in the new normal. I can't wait to get started. All right, welcome to another episode of Stock Talking, back by top popular demand, a diligent dollar. Uh, highly recommend you guys go and listen to the first one if you haven't. Um, we're actually going to talk about a industry and a specific name in that industry that I don't think many listeners to this podcast will be too excited about, but hopefully we can get you excited about it. That is the movie theater industry. But first, uh, let's kick it off by introducing him. Diligent Dollar, welcome to the show. Thanks, Ben. Thanks for having me back on. So we're going to talk about National Cinemedia and movies. Um, but I, I guess I'll get started by asking you um, why you think the movie theater industry at this point in time is interesting to look at. I know both of us have, have had the experience of trying to talk about this on our blog and have had some reader feedback where there's been a lot of eyebrows raised and people have been heavily skeptical. Yeah, well, I mean, I guess if I take a step back, you know, why is it a good time to invest in the movie theater industry now? It's probably because uh, it's been completely discounted at this point. Obviously, COVID has severely impacted the business, but I also think a lot of people aren't doing as much work on the industry because they just sort of have already written it off. And I think people write it off because they maybe personally haven't gone to the theaters, you know, recently, or maybe they go two times a year, maybe around the holidays. And in reality, if you ask them, you know, hey, how how have box office uh, trends, you know, pre-COVID, you know, up until 2019, how have those trends been in the past 10, 15 years, especially with the, you know, onset of PVOD, which is basically, you know, the Netflixes and everything like that of the world. Uh, You know, how has box office trended with those dynamics? And the reality is box office up to 2019 was basically at all time highs. Um, It's continuously trended up over time. Now it hasn't been the fast growth rate, but it's not in this secular decline that everyone has been saying it's been in. Um, And, you know, another pushback, you know, to your point that I've heard on, you know, me doing work on movie theaters is, well, I don't want to make a bet on, you know, when movie theaters are going to get back to full capacity. You know, I don't want to sit in a movie theater, you know, right next to someone else. And the fact of the matter is, movie theaters don't need that. They never did. And movie theaters, in fact, have been taking capacity out of the theaters. So they've actually been actively reducing the number of seats in the theater. If you think about, you've probably been to a movie theater, at least recently enough that, you know, maybe they have the big armchairs in the, in the theater and things like that. That was a decision to, you know, make the movie theater experience better for the consumers, the diehard fans, but they actively were taking seats out. So it's just funny how that works. And I think a lot of the theaters have already come out and said, you know, we'll be 
you know, positive EBITDA, which is 25% capacity. And, you know, that's generally how they run. Um, that makes sense. Uh, I mean, I, it, I do feel like having gone to some movies over the last few years, the, the, the theaters are definitely smaller and the seats are nicer. So on the consumer side, like I think I'm willing to pay a bit more for a ticket if I get that premium experience. I think a lot of people would point at the studios though and go, well, why do the studios need the, the movie theaters? Couldn't they just release on premium video on demand? Uh, what, like why do they need to keep paying the movie theaters to do this? How would you respond to that? Yeah, it's a good question. And it's definitely the next thing that comes up. And, and the re- I think people, especially this year would be like, well, you know, Disney put Mulan out on PBOD and they charge $30 for it. And the fact of the matter is, if you read Disney's commentary on the theaters, and in fact, all the studios, they realize and they comment on their theater strategy is not changing after COVID because they make so much money in the theater. Like, in fact, a, a huge bulk of the earnings for any film is actually generated in the theater. Because if you think about it, it's almost it's almost like how valuable live entertainment is. It's almost, it's an event for moviegoers. This is, I think we can all agree, you know, if you were to watch a scary movie in the theater versus at home or, you know, a big, you know, Transformers, Marvel movie, one of those, I think we could all probably agree that it's a better experience in the theater than at home. Where there's the diehard group of moviegoers, you know, pay up for that. And that is why the box office trends have also been, you know, steadily going up. Um, So they still very much view that as the core market for how they will monetize their films. Um, And frankly, if you look at, you know, how Mulan did, um, how some of these films have done that have gone PBOD, they've actually been failures um, by, you know, most measurements. If you think about how much Mulan did in the box office, you know, I don't have it in front of me. I'm going to make up numbers, but let's say they did 300 million in the box office. Well, the budget for Mulan was probably around $200 million. Plus they spent, call it 50, 60 million on advertising. So for you to only bring in 300 million of revenue for that, that is not a success. That is not, you know, a good outcome. And I think, you know, currently what's going on right now is we're, you're hearing, you know, um, stories of MGM is trying to sell the latest Bond film. And, you know, Apple and Netflix said, hey, you know, we'll take that content since the movie theaters are literally shut and we'll put it on our platform. Let us pay you 200 300 million dollars for that film um and and that will you know sort of help you guys with this film that you've had to delay multiple times um and mgm has rejected that offer so far and they want 600 million dollars um and the reason they want so much money is obviously because 200 to 300 million dollars of rent love you know sale price for the film would not make them whole you know, the estimated budget I think I saw was also around a couple hundred million plus marketing that they've already had to do. Plus, they have arrangements with um, Daniel Craig and some of the other uh, rights owners of the film for some how well the, the movie does in the theater. So 
you have to make them whole on that agreement. Um, and so there's a, a bunch of other costs that come into play on how to make yourself whole on some of these films. Um, and I, I think, you know, again, if you just read the commentary from any of these players, they're not saying, you know, PVOD is the future of what we're planning to do. It's, if anything, it's probably going to be a combination. Um, but my base case is that we're going to see more of a return to normal when there's a vaccine for COVID. Yeah, very logical. I mean, I do think the bears would have a couple points they want to respond on. So I'll pretend to be bearish now. So one thing we've seen is AMC and Cinemark have both done deals with Universal that basically has tightened the theatrical release window. So I think in the order of like 15 or 17 days, and there's an option to increase it um, if the movies do a certain amount in revenue. Um, so tighter theatrical release windows, I think a lot of bears would suggest this is this shows that the studios are becoming perhaps less confident in movie theaters, which makes sense. We are in a pandemic. Um, there are all, the other thing I wanted to bring up too was Wonder Woman 1984 got a lot of attention because the CEO of Warner Media wrote an open letter that basically said we're going to do a hybrid release in theaters and then on HBO Max too. Uh, but again, it's the first known instance I can recall of kind of this dual release of theaters and uh, PVOD. So, I, I mean, I think both those two things basically are suggestions, various people would say, that movie theaters are are losing a little bit of leverage. Uh, how would you respond to that one? Yeah, I, I do think, um, you know, the announcements that we've seen with Cinemark and AMC basically saying, you know, they were going to, the release window is going to be tightened is only a function really of the dynamics of this year. Um, I think the theater chains being sh- mostly shut in Q3 and now opened, but they, the issue with the theaters right now, right, is there's no movies to even show. So it's, it's kind of for me, at, at least in the U S uh, for me, it's kind of like a moot point that they're even open. Cause it's, what are you, what are you going to show? Um, so I think the theaters are trying to show the studios that they will be flexible amid, you know, rising cases and things like that and uncertainty on, you know, when people are going to go back to the movies. They're, they're basically giving them leeway to say, okay, try it in the theater first. If it doesn't work, take it to PVOD. But if it does, you know, we have an option to extend that time frame. Um, that it stays in the theaters. If it weren't for COVID-19, I don't think there would even be the need for this. Um, I actually think it's even positive that, you know, the agreement isn't more onerous on on the players. Um, And I think it shows that even the studios want to get those, you know, three weeks in the theaters, because that's generally where they make the bulk of the money anyway. to try to, to continue to test the films. I noticed you qualified at least in the U.S. when you were talking about these deals. What's happening in other countries right now as it pertains to movie theaters? Yeah, great question. And I know uh, we've talked about it. If you go and look at some of the Asian countries that have, have a better handle on COVID-19 cases, the movie releases, um, they, they're still having, you know, mostly... Asian uh, centered uh, movie releases right now. And basically, 
you know, the theaters and box offices are basically at, you know, let's say 90 to 100 percent of 2019 levels already. Um, and that's in China, Japan, uh, I believe in South Korea. Um, so that looking there, I, th I think, first of all, to take a step back, Asia has already been a leading indicator for what's going on in the U.S. throughout COVID. Um, we saw what happened with China. You know, they had a shutdown. Everyone was really worried about their economy. They got a handle on the virus and things came back pretty quickly. Uh, that sort of repeated in the U.S. Maybe we didn't have a better handle on COVID, but, you know, it's not like we went, um, you know, full shutdown and things spiraled out of control. Um, so I think that's a leading indicator of what should happen in the U.S. of uh, people are willing to go back to uh, a theater after. I, you know, bring up a dark reference every time I talk about theaters, but just to go back to our initial question on, you know, are theaters in, you know, secular decline or not? Again, the core group, I mean, there was a mass shooting in a theater in Colorado and people still went back to the theaters. The thing about COVID is there's, you don't read in the newspaper about, oh, a super spreader event happened in the theater. We just haven't seen those headlines yet. So I'm a little, I, I just don't really buy that, uh, you know, people are associating COVID and movie theaters any more than they would have just, you know, being inside in general with a group of people. Like if you're willing to go to Home Depot, Target, the grocery store and, you know, spend 30 minutes in there, you know, are you really going to be that concerned about sitting on the opposite end of a theater with someone else in there? I'm, I'm not sure. I, I, I don't really buy it. Especially. Makes sense. Yeah. I, I want to shift the discussion a little bit about how to invest in this space, because you mentioned a bunch of great points. I think the natural conclusion would be, why don't I invest in a, a movie chain like Cinemark or AMC? Or, or why don't I go to somewhere that has a bunch of Asia exposure like IMAX and already is doing well? The name you actually pitched on your blog is National Cinemedia. So that's actually a, a cinema advertising company. So why choose this company as opposed to some of the other names in the movie space? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, you know, I, I did look at the theater chains. Um, you know, AMC, for example, I, I think their balance sheet is in such poor shape um, that my conclusion was they were going to have to file for bankruptcy, um, just in, in a matter of, um, it's just a matter of time. Um, you know, I say that obviously I'm bullish on the theaters, but obviously your balance sheet can be in bad enough shape that it doesn't, it doesn't matter. They've also issued a bunch of equity and, and debt. So, I mean, their enterprise value is not that much different, even though their stock price is way down. Um, Cinemark is kind of the same. They issued a convert. So, you know, even if you do see a lot of upside on, on the stock, you kind of get capped out by the convert, uh, diluting the market cap. So I view it a little bit of those two of, of the same. Um, and, you know, IMAX is a decent one. I just don't see the same upside for IMAX as I do for National Cinemedia. IMAX, of course, has um, a, a bunch of Asia exposure um, and, you know, that, that's going to help them if COVID cases continue in the U.S. and we don't have a release window. Um, 
that's that's really the ba the bear case I see for a lot of these names is most of them have enough cash to ride out you know the next year uh, with no films. Um, but you know if we're still sitting here in June 2021 and we're still talking about delaying films, then I would start to be more concerned. Um, and so you know part of my downside protection is how long can these businesses hibernate with no revenue? And to take a step back, maybe we should just talk about, these are the probably one of the best businesses to just hibernate in. Um, so if you think about who are the employees of movie theater chains, I mean, it's your, your high school, you know, kid ball, you know, basically cutting tickets or, you know, at the ticket window, you know, maybe you have a few uh, kids that clean up, there's a manager, there's people running the concession stand, but it's, you know, a lot of part-time hourly employees that if there's no films, I mean, you can just shut the theater down and put it in hibernation. Your fixed costs could be rent, but, you know, maybe you can push back on that given the circumstances. Um, and then, you know, everything else is, is pretty variable. Um, you know, you're not going to be running the concession stand if there's no people there and there's no film. So that I, I like the theaters from that perspective of I didn't think, you know, a Cinemark was going to run into a, 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 a very dangerous liquidity situation. Um, but National Cinemedia, which basically runs the ads that you see 30 minutes before um, the trailers and the movie start, that's just a completely different game. I mean, that is very asset light. They don't own the theaters or anything. So it's just an advertising platform. And if their business has no revenues, I mean, you can really cut costs there and you don't really have much fixed cost. Um, so the amount of cash burn there and the amount of cash they have on hand today, you know, they openly say on their calls, they have 18 months of runway and just, you know, the current environment. So when I think about that as, okay, what happens if I'm wrong and we are here in June, 2021 and there's no film slate still, um, then I feel much more comfortable just sitting in national Cinemedia and, um, and, and writing it out. And, and to highlight their confidence, they still pay a dividend. Um, they have a bunch of cash and they still pay a dividend. So, you know, I, I, it's tough to get comfortable with, you know, just say, oh, it's a, you know, big dividend and they're continuing to paying a lot of times that goes wrong. But in this case, you know, they have, you know, 200 million of cash and the, the market cap when I wrote about it was around 200 million. So, it was, I mean, obviously they have debt, but it was like, okay, you know, take the do the math of cash burn per month plus the dividends, you know, can they write it out? And it was pretty pretty confident that they would be still be standing two years from now. Totally makes sense. Uh, yeah, lower CapEx haven't done a whole lot to dilute their shareholders, which yep. comes pretty well to some of the other names in the space. Uh, I figured we could take a step back because this might be a good place where we could start exploring the any moat or types of competitive advantage is uh, National City Media has. So this company has been around a while. I mean, I think its origin story is pretty interesting. So tell me a bit about how this company got started and specifically around how it relates to some of the movie theaters, because I think there's an interesting relationship um, with some of National Cine Media's customers. Some of the customers actually own equity in uh, part of the company. So, so let's talk about that a bit. 
That's right. They they were originally uh, founded as an advertising platform to run and in the beginning of um, each film. And the theater chains actually uh, decided to create a joint venture to come together to run this platform. Um, and so actually, uh, you know, like Regal, um, Cinemark and AMC all owned equity in national Cinemedia. Um, the kind of confusing thing when you look at the structure is you have, you know, a national Cinemedia Inc., which is the publicly traded entity. Um, you and they own, you know, a 50% stake in national Cinemedia LLC. Um, and that ownership stake in National Cinemedia LLC is split between those ownership chains. Um, and so th that's a kind of a unique thing. Um, but, you know, the, the chains came together to, to do this because they basically saw it as a very attractive ROI um, for advertisers. Or, or, or for companies to come and you know display their products, like let's say a Coca-Cola is, is an easy example where you have a group of people that have come and decided to attend an event. And at least before cell phones were invented, you know you had them sitting in a room staring straight ahead at a screen showing them stuff. Um, that was a very attractive billboard if you will um because th they have come to that event and they are basically forced to watch it and if you're showing them an ad for coke maybe you know their mouth starts watering and they go out to the concession stand and actually buy a coke and so coke makes money the theater makes money win-win um you know so national city media has a lot of those premier brands including amazon ford you know all the big blue chip companies advertise ahead of um films and, and another thing they also do is sort of events, what they, what they call kind of like event um, films. I, I'm blanking on what they specifically call, but it's kind of like when, you're, when you go in and watch the, um, you're, you're about to watch a movie, but they're showing you film on how a studio made another type of movie. So let's just say, for example, you're going to see an Avengers movie and you get there early and you're you're actually watching a 10 minute video on how disney made mulan and it's all about you know special effects that they did the writing the what you know what the actor was doing that's all that's all interesting for the consumer to kind of pay attention to but it's also a 10 minute ad for mulan um so that's valuable to disney and they know kind of your customer base is already something that's maybe interested in the Disney product and, and things like that. So, you know, I still think it's a pretty attractive billboard space. Um, you know, people might say, oh, well, people will look at their phone or, may, you know, they try to get to the movie just to catch the, the trailers and that's it. You know, that's not really worth that much. Well, it is still worth something. And, you know, you and I were kind of talking about analogies that I, I would put it, put towards it. You know, let's say there was a concert that you wanted to go to that started at 10, but an opening band would start at seven that you never heard of. Is, and, you know, a lot of people will show up late just to catch the, you know, the main event. But a lot of people are also going to show up early to see, you know, just to get in line, you know, get drinks and, um, you know, maybe hear what this, the, the new 
band has to offer. Is that not attractive space for that new band? Do they not get to connect with the some base of consumers and maybe a small portion of them look them up after, but it's still a high impact event for that, for that band. Um, and that's how a lot of bands get started. So, you know, it's, it's not a perfect analogy, but it's definitely one that I think about there. It's, it's worth something for these big brands. Um, uh, yeah, I like that analogy. I, I will tell the listeners, I uh, actually watched the fray open for Ben Folds and it's a, it's a good comp because, you know, I kind of am an alternative like soft rock fan and that, you know, the phrase similar got into them as a result of, of going to that concert. So yeah. totally acknowledge that national CD media kind of has a, a nice built in advantage um, by having some ownership over that space. That said, it, it does seem like other companies could come in and, and kind of do a, a similar, if not the same thing. Um, but, you know, you look at AMC, Cinemark, um, and, and Cineworld, they've all kind of kept these agreements. And I believe some of them renewed or uh, re-upped in 2019. That's um, right. Why do these companies not do it in-house or, or look at other potential players and, and just stick with National Cinemedia? Well, one, it's not a core competency for them. Um, and they earn money. You know, basically National Cinemedia kind of pays them the right for, for that space. But then, you know, the advertisers are paying National Cinemedia. National Cinemedia earns a profit on it. And all the theater chains own equity in National Cinemedia. So it's sort of a you know, win-win for all. Um, and I think it, you know, the reason why it would be very hard for someone to displace a player is they have 20 plus year contracts with all the theater chains. And if you own equity in the, um, in National Cinemedia, I don't know why you would bring in another player. There is another player called Screen Vision. Um, and AMC actually owns a small stake in that. But it's it's broadly seen that Screen Vision is an inferior product and a much lower ROI um, compared to National City Media. Yeah, it seems like a pretty nice mode, at least in the the three kind of major players we talked about. That that said, like all three of those customers, it looks like two of them are going to weather through. I think Cineworld just refinanced a portion of its debt, and then uh, Cinemark has a good amount of liquidity going forward. AMC, you mentioned earlier in the podcast, you think potentially could go bankrupt. Uh, obviously, you don't want a customer that's having financial troubles. Uh, thoughts on what could happen if we see AMC go BK? Uh, how would that affect National Cinema Media? Yeah, I think this is probably an interesting dynamic um, that a lot of times you don't really have to think about. But if you think about it, in bankruptcy, you can expunge any contract, lease, or anything like that um, uh, th- through Chapter 11. And so technically, National Cinemedia has a 20-plus year contract with AMC. AMC could take the opportunity to expunge or renegotiate that contract in bankruptcy if they wanted to. Um, and that, that's definitely a risk. However, when you do that in bankruptcy, you're, you are creating an, uh, a general unsecured claim for National Cinemedia uh which would be huge because you're basically taking the discounted contract value over 20 years that they were owed from amc and now you're bringing that to the forefront as the claim for national cinemedia against amc so what you essentially have is national cinemedia is now a huge general unsecured claim in amc meaning they have a big claim on the amc bankruptcy estate so you can have this weird dynamic where 
National Senate Media all of a sudden becomes AMC's biggest equity holder through bankruptcy, which would just be bizarre, but it is in the range of outcomes. Um, however, I, I think um, if AMC were to declare bankruptcy, you know, you don't have to expunge every contract. You're not going to re renegotiate everything. I think odds are just one to avoid the messiness. They will likely just reinstate this contract. This is not a contract that's onerous to AMC, maybe as much as it's lease agreements on some theaters that are underperforming. AMC is much more likely to target that versus anything and also target, you know, they have too much debt and they're going to try to recut actual financial debt, such as, you know, their term loans and bonds and things like that. Um, so it's a weird dynamic, but my base case and high probability cases, if any of them file for bankruptcy, this contract is probably just going to be reinstated. That's good to hear. I mean, I think we'll, we'll get to talking about the valuation now because I think even in the stress case where maybe they restructure or change that contract, um, it, it maybe isn't game over if you're long NCMI. So uh, why do you think at this point in time the stock is undervalued? Well, for one, I mean, it comes back to I don't think theaters are dead. I think theaters have a pretty good likelihood of coming back faster than what people expect. Um, we've seen that in Asia. And number three, if I'm wrong, uh, at least there's a really good hibernation period. So I, I don't think I need to be perfect on timing. And number four, because it's an asset-like platform, it generates a ton of cash. So over the past 10 years, they've generated around $200 million of free cash flow. Um, so, uh, you know, in my base case, you know, I have them coming back when theaters reopen, you know, that I have them generating around a hundred million of free cash flow, um, which puts to I think around thirty-three percent free cash flow yield. Uh, now they have a now they do have debt, but I I think it's going to be very manageable in the context of things coming back to normal. Um, longer term, I do think they will get back to two hundred million of free cash flow, um, and I think it's important to remember. You know, uh, National Cine Media was kind of viewed as like a growth stock before this all happened because they had all these avenues for how they were going to increase um, different ad chains and things like that um, and, you know, diversify away from just, you know, the, the pre-movie um, advertising. I think some of that stuff starts to come back. Um, but anyway, you know, I look at this as a, a pretty good risk reward name um, that even if you price it to, let's say a 10% free cash flow yield or 15% free cash flow yield, I think it's got multi-bagger potential. Yeah, I, there are, if I could buy a private business with a 33% free cash flow yield, I'd love to pay myself back in, in three years. Uh, so that's pretty good. I mean, you talked about like normally this should probably trade at a 15% yield so you think upside, there's multiple bags to be had here. <laughs> um, I mean, it's interesting you mentioned that they kind of were getting into uh, some new lines of business, some new growth avenues prior to the pandemic. Is there any like real upside case where this goes beyond the $200 million free cash flow um, and you know, even extends beyond where it was pre-pandemic? Yeah, I think there is. Um, you know, some of those things that I was even talking about where you know, they set up 
these sort of events before the film, um, that's that's sort of a growth engine um, that they could definitely monetize even even better. Um, and I think the information they are able to gather on the on the consumer, if they got better at telling the um, you know maybe CPG or whoever is actually advertising, if they got better at um, figuring out you know what sort of impression led to you know an actual purchase or anything like that if they started to work together with technology in on that front then you could have a serious game changer with this business that's not in my base case at all or in my underwriting case but it is something to think about that you know covid's not going to last forever and this company is still really well positioned um and you know generating cash so I think that affords them a lot of opportunity to reinvest in some of those growth areas. Yeah, the upside scenario is pretty exciting. Uh, I always want to make sure we cover the downside scenario just so we're responsible to our uh, to our listeners. So you mentioned the AMC contract potential restructure in a bankruptcy case. I think that's a big one. Obviously, there are some issues with the pandemic, but let's talk about what would be thesis breaking for you here. Is there anything top of mind where you would be a seller uh, if, if a certain scenario played out? Yeah, I think it's a good question. You know, I mentioned there's a lot of time left given how much cash they have. But if we are sitting here, let's say fall 2021, and the movie slate is continuously still getting pushed out, even though we have three vaccines announced right now, um, that would be thesis breaking only because I would start to get more concerned about liquidity. Um, at that point, they should still have probably call it eight months left. Um, but I, that would start to be, get to the point where, you know, now you're kind of playing with fire. Um, the only counter to that scenario is like you, you sort of said it before. And I was talking about, you know, Cinemark, AMC have all issued equity. They've all issued debt to shore up liquidity. The capital markets are open. Um, the capital markets are seen through COVID. So I think in an emergency scenario, they could raise debt, whether it's convertible bond, equity, um, you know, first lien debt, bonds, unsecured bonds. I think there's a, an avenue where they can shore up liquidity to get them through the next moment of time. They're also paying a dividend. They could cut the dividend. Um, in this scenario, the reason why I like the stock and I've, I've made investments in names like this before is the market thinks the company is dead. That's pricing it as if it will file bankruptcy. I don't think it's going to file bankruptcy. And so when the market figures out that it's not going to file, I think it's going to be a multi-bagger. Um, and it's kind of just that simple. Awesome. Yeah, I really like the margin of safety and I, I super appreciate you coming on. Um, diligentdollar.com is the blog. There's a, a hyphen right in between diligent yeah. and dollar. Um, what should people look forward to? I know you, you just had a post on some secret SaaS businesses. Anything you want to preview uh, to our, our listener base here? Yeah, I mean, that's a, that's a good post to go check out. Uh, I'm probably going to dive in a little bit more on that. Um, you know, I think SaaS has been bid up pretty well here. I think everyone knows that. He's probably listening to your podcast. Um, and people love it because it's, 
highly free cash flow generated when they, you know, scale, obviously hyper growth um, and the subscription business model. Um, subscription business model is kind of all the rage right now. And my post is essentially saying, look, these companies may not be called SaaS and they may not be in software at all, but they are highly recurring, high margin asset like businesses that have kind of been left in the dust of this re revaluation of SaaS companies. Um, so I want to go where people aren't really looking, but maybe will start to value them similarly as they figure that out. Um, so, you know, I, I highlighted a bunch of different names in there uh, that I think are, are interesting that uh, have a lot of those characteristics. Now, they may not have hyper growth, but I do think they're growing quite nicely and, and will compound well over time. Awesome. Yeah. It seems to me if you don't have software in your name, uh, investors can get a much cheaper price on your stock. So I appreciate yeah. you putting that post there. I recommend everybody go read it. Um, Diligent, it's been a pleasure. Looking forward to having you on for a part three. Thanks, man. Thanks for listening. To hear more episodes of Stock Talking and read a blog with my latest trade recommendations, market commentary, and more, visit postcoronastocks.com.